0: of the service today. Um, But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 5. We're looking at verses 12 through 20. And today, I mean, I'm concluding our series of messages from the book of James that we've had entitled Faith That Works. Faith That Works. And so we're in the last portion of the book of James. And I want to begin at verse number 12 and read down through the end. And so James writes to the church. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray. And so, Father, we do thank you for your word today, and I pray you give us ears to hear what you want to speak to us in hearts with soil ready to receive um, your word into our lives. We thank you for this. And in Jesus name we pray. Amen. And so just one more time, let me review what we've been looking at here in the book of James, because as we've been going through James letter to the church, we've been asking and answering the question, what does real faith look like? That is, what does it mean to have real faith? That is a faith that saves, a faith that works, we've been saying. And you see, James is calling us to back up our words of faith, our claim of faith in Jesus, our claim to have been born again, to have had our lives made new uh, by Jesus, to back it all up with a lifestyle that reflects our faith and the work of Christ within us. As we've said, James has been making the point. We'll bring it up in front of you one more time. Only a faith that works is a faith that works. right? Only a faith that works is a faith that works. Now, let me just remind us of the context as we look at today's message, which I've entitled, A Faith That Turns to God. And you see James has been writing to his scattered flock. These were Jewish believers who were part of the church in Jerusalem where he was their pastor, but who have since had to flee due to great persecution that had broken out against them. These Jewish believers in Jesus were now a scattered group living as refugees and worshipping in small synagogues or churches that they had formed wherever they they went. And they were facing, as we saw in chapter one, they were facing trials of many kinds, of various kinds. That is, continued persecution and poverty and oppression and the list goes on. You see, James' letter to his scattered flock was written for one to encourage them in their faith, but as well to nudge them towards patience and perseverance and to instruct them as to how they ought to live that is, they ought to live their lives in a way that exemplified the fact that they were truly followers of Jesus. People who really did believe that Jesus was in his Lord, Messiah and Savior. But you see, the question for them, as it is for us even today, is, well, well, how do we respond when faced with the trials, sufferings and the pain of life? And how many of us know that all those things come into our lives at some point or another? Right. How do we respond? What do we do as we await, as we looked at last week, um, hear from James' words, as we await the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns and God intervenes and puts our, our world back in order? And listen, we all know our own tendencies, don't we? Right? When things are getting a little rough in our lives, when we begin experiencing pain or suffering, whatever it might be, well, there's the tendency to vent on others. There's a tendency to begin to grumble and complain. There's a tendency to begin to use our tongues in ways that hurt others. Or maybe for us to become despondent or given to despair, and even we become tempted to even throw in the towel on our faith. And I think somewhere in there describes all of us in one way or another. You see, James has been dealing with all of this throughout his letter. And now he concludes, as he concludes, he gives to us just a couple of more instructions. But most of all, most of all, he reminds us that a faith that works is a faith that causes us to first and foremost turn to God in prayer. That if we're truly a people of faith, when we're going through suffering, through pain, through difficulties, the first thing we do is we turn to God. Now, in verse number 12, he gives this instruction, and we could put it this way. Listen, when you're going through really hard times, when when life is, like, throwing its curveballs at you, he says, first of all, in verse 12, do not swear. Do not swear. And I know some of our Bibles may put verse 12 because, you know, we have, like, these headings and things are broken down. But all of that is just kind of, like, to help us. Like, we created that, Okay. And some of our Bibles put verse 12 with the previous section that we looked at last week about waiting for the day of the Lord. But it seems best to tie it to James concluding words, because if you notice, he says in verse 12, he says above all. And he's using a phrase that most likely means, well, finally. Here are my final thoughts as to how to respond to the trials and difficulties of life. And he begins his conclusion. You know, it's kind of like the pastor says says like three or four times, well, in conclusion, and finally, and in conclusion, and the congregation is saying, when is this guy ever going to end? I'll try not to do that to you today. But he says, listen, finally, he says, well, here's my conclusion. First of all, when you find yourself in difficult times, do not swear. Now, that word swear, he's not talking so much about using profane or vulgar language, right? That's the way some of us would first of all read that. But that would kind of be understood in the church, you know? They've already received teaching about that, to be careful not to use profane or vulgar language. But he's talking about making oaths. He's talking about making vows and promises that we may or may not intend to keep, you know, he's, he's kind of quoting Jesus, where Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I was looking in the mirror just today. I'm like, I, I don't know. I wish I could make some of these grays a little darker again. I know some of you want to give me the bottle, right? But he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. For anything more than this comes from evil. You see, both Jesus' words and James' words have nothing to do with taking an oath before a court or when being inducted into a political office or so forth. But the words have everything to do with being truthful and honest in what one says. in Not trying to give some false impression or get one's way by means of of false or maybe semi-false statements. But it's about the straightforward use of one's words. Again, notice he's talking about how we use our tongues. He's spoken about that a lot. You see, because here's the thing. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, facing trials of many kinds, the temptation is to say all kinds of things to get ourselves out of it. And so, you know, there's the times when you know people say, oh, God, if you'll heal me, if you'll deliver me, if you'll help me, if you'll get me out of this jam, you know, then, you know, I'll give my life to you. I'll follow you. I'll give all my money away. I'll, I'll become a missionary. I'll go into, in, into the depths of the jungle, whatever it is. I'll give you all my kids, you know. And how many vows like that have gone unfulfilled? After all, they were only meant to manipulate the hand of God. But there's also the temptation to begin to make oaths to people. I swear I would never do that to you. I promise I'll do this. If only you'll do that for me. Oh, if you help me, then I'll... You make some sort of promise. And sometimes we even invoke God's name into it. You see, we're saying words like that to manipulate the people around us, trying to get them to trust us when maybe they ought not. Often we're trying to get ourselves out from under some difficult circumstance. You see, James, as did Jesus, says, listen, when you find yourself facing trials, facing difficulties in life, don't allow your tongue to get away from you by making vows or oaths of many kinds, not to God nor to other people. Just be straightforward in your speech. For as Jesus said, we will be held accountable for every word that we speak. And so we shouldn't have to, listen, church, we shouldn't have to throw into our language, I swear, or to be honest, in order to get people to believe us and trust us. But rather, our lives and our words ought to be such that our honesty and integrity is a given. Nor should we have to feel like this need to twist God's arm by making all kinds of promises to him. You know, he's not that kind of God. And so James goes on now to talk about how it is we ought to speak to God, how we ought to respond to God and speak to him during our times of need. And he says, no, do not swear. Right. That was point number one. I don't see it up on the screen there. Right. Do not swear. But then um, he says, turn to God in prayer. Turn to God in prayer. You see, this is the main point of James' final section. He's calling the believers as people of faith to turn to God. in whatever the situations may, may be that they face, it's a call to prayer. He says in verse 13, he says, turn to God when in trouble or when suffering. He's talking about all kinds of stuff coming into our lives from the outside when facing various trials, troubles, suffering of life. He says the very first thing a person of faith does is pray. After all, no one can help us through times such as these, as can God. It's no wonder the psalmist refers to God as our refuge, our fortress, our help in times of trouble. Do you believe that today, church? Right. Listen, what a great privilege we have as God's people to be able to go to him in prayer when we find ourselves in trouble in places and times. Of suffering. That's right, the, the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the in our time of need. See, God invites us to his throne as his children. I always like to say, listen, listen, if uh, the king's throne room, everybody needs an appointment to get in there. Right. Everybody needs an appointment. Except for his children, his children get to knock on the door door and say, hey, dad, can I see you? Can I talk to you? And the door gets swung open. For them, it's always a throne of grace. So James says, listen, turn to God when suffering. And he says he goes on that same verse, he says, and turn to God when cheerful. And listen, the word that James uses doesn't mean that all the difficulties of life are gone. But rather, it speaks of a sense of gladness and joy within one's heart, within one's spirit. We could translate it as being in good spirits. And so when you're in good spirits, when your heart is kind of lifted up, the response is what? Songs of praise another means of turning to God. We might say another form of prayer. I'm reminded of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. When they're in that jail cell, it's the middle of the night, right? Their situation was difficult. They were in chains. Their freedom and their lives were being threatened. And yet they were filled with enough faith to pray. And with a gladness and joy in their hearts, even in that jail cell, that caused them to sing songs of praise to God. You remember that God responded to their prayers and to their praise. And then he goes on, he says, yes, uh, turn to God in your suffering, turn to God when you're feeling cheerful, and turn to God when sick. Turn to God when sick, verses 14 and 15. And notice there's a progression that takes place. First, he begins with the sick person that the sick person takes the initiative to call the elders or the pastors to come and pray for them, most likely at their home. It could be maybe it could be done in the church or maybe a hospital room. But the point is the responsibility lays with the sick person because that's how the sick person exhibits at least some degree of faith towards God. And guess what? The pastors don't need to, like, have mental telepathy to figure out who's sick, you know? You know how many times I find out, like, long after the fact that someone was sick, and I say, I wish you would have called so we could have prayed for you. See, church, if you have faith and you find yourself sick, you take the initiative. You don't wait for somebody to find out. You take the initiative, and you call the pastors. You call the elders, the leaders of the church. And so the sick person does his part, and then the elders, they do two things, right? Right? For one, they pray the prayer of faith. And I think that's interesting that it's the elders who extend faith on behalf of the sick person. And I've often wondered why James puts it that way. And I kind of think it's this way. You know how when sometimes we're really sick and listen, you know, I went through a lot this year with the back surgery and then COVID during, you know, my recovery time. And sometimes when you're down and out, you're sick. You don't really have enough faith to pray for yourself. Come on, anybody with me? Pastor, you're the pastor. Sometimes we don't have enough faith, you know, because we're kind of down. We're discouraged. You know, stuff isn't going the way we thought it was going to go. Listen, just a few months ago, I'm out doing this and that. I'm running, you know, and so forth. And suddenly I'm just like, out. Oh, God, what's going on here? But I call other people to come around me here, in this case, the elders, and they pray the prayer of faith. And listen, I've been in those situations where I've heard people say, you know, they come come pray here in the church. We pray for you. And now, you know, you claim the you, you, you claim the healing. And if you're not healed, there's a problem with your faith. And sometimes I want to say to the evangelist or the other, one, no, maybe it's a problem with your faith. But they pray the prayer of faith, and they anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. And there's been a lot of discussion about, well, what that means. Was it, was it anointing for medicinal purposes? Was it a sacramental um, ritual? But in the context of the scripture, it most likely means two things. And I just love this. For one, the anointing with oil in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, was always an act of consecration or dedication, setting something apart. In this case, setting that person apart to God for his work in their life. Even we see with the articles in the tabernacle, the priests and the kings of the Old Testament, they were anointed as as a sign of being consecrated, dedicated to God. And so it's like when we anoint someone with oil, we're saying, God, this person belongs to you. This is your child. This is your servant, and their life is in your hands because they're dedicated to you. But it's also the the oil is also a reminder of the presence of God, the ministry of the Holy Spirit within our lives, in this case, especially to the sick. And so as we're anointing someone with oil, we're not only saying, God, this person belongs to you, but we're saying to the sick person, listen, God sees you. He's with you. He knows what you have need of. The presence of God is here by his spirit to minister to you in your time of need. It's a symbol that speaks to God and to the person that we're praying for. And then notice that James says, listen, he says here that God responds to the prayers, these prayers prayed in faith. Notice what he does. He, He says this, and the prayer offered in faith in the NIV, it says, we'll make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up, and if they've sinned, they've been, they will be forgiven. Literally, James says, and it's kind of interesting, he says, the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. And it's not the normal word for heals, I found that kind of interesting. In this case, it could be translated as restores, but it seems to include not just a physical healing that may be necessary, but as well, even a spiritual and or emotional healing that may be needed. Because God knows we are, we are one unit, body, mind, soul, spirit. We're made up of all, and, and every part of us yeah, connects to the other. And so the word here speaks of a wholeness that God brings. And he says, the Lord will raise him up, a clear reference to physical healing. And then he says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Notice the if. That is not all sicknesses is due to sin in one's life. And Jesus made that very clear. But there are times James makes room for the fact that there, there are times when one's continued illness may be tied to sin in one's life. As the Apostle Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 11, he says some of you are weak and ill and some have even died because, you know, you've allowed yourself to kind of stray from the things of God and, you know, we should judge ourselves and so forth. The point is that sometimes God allows sickness into our lives to get our attention regarding our lives and the sin that can potentially set us off course. Listen, God, I hate to tell you this, God is not first of all interested in you and I being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Do you know that? He's first of all interested in making sure that we get to spend eternity with him and that we get to know his presence at work in our lives. And as James pointed out earlier in his letter, our lives must always be submitted to God's will. Right? We don't presume upon God. We don't force his hand. Our prayers and the anointing oil and not some magical formula or some mystical incantation. But listen, rather, our prayers are the means by which we as God's children, we extend our faith towards our good heavenly father. The means by which we turn to God when we find ourselves faced with sickness and any other difficulties that life may, may, may bring our way. And we, we count it a privilege to come to him. And we always pray, God, listen, this is what I'm asking for. But ultimately, it's not about my will, but it's about your will. Because you know what's best. You know what's best. And then James goes on. You have to excuse me if you've just kind of taken us through this like this. But I think it's so important. But James goes on, verse 16. To talk about mutual confession and and mutual prayer, because not all the prayer comes from the elders or the pastors of the church. And so he says in verse 16, he says, therefore, in other words, as a result of what I've been saying, he says, he's he says, confess your sins to each other. Mutual confession. And I I don't really think James is talking about, well, we we, we kind of lay out all of our sins before each other, you know? Like we're constantly dumping all of our dirt. But he's talking about, when you put it into the context of his letter to the church, he's talking about our sins against one another. After all, this has been one of his main concerns. Because James knew, even as Jesus taught us, that we can't be in right relationship with God, our Father, if we're not in right relationship with one another. When this get, when the horizontal gets out of whack, the vertical gets out of whack. And so he says... He says, "Confess your sins. You you have some something's broken down in your relationship with the people around you, with the other people in the church. Confess it to each other, and then pray for each other. Because as we restore our relationships with with one another, we pray for each other, and you know we now have access into each other's lives to see God work through our prayers." And notice he says the result that you may be healed. And what's interesting here is that here James uses the, the, the word that's typically used through the New Testament for healing. As Jesus went out and healed people, as the apostles went out and healed people. This is the word. And so it makes me ask this question. I just kind of throw it out to you. Just a question, okay? Could our broken relationships with people around us be hindering answers to our prayers? You know, Peter wrote to the husbands, he says, listen, be kind, compassionate to your wives and so forth. He says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I've often said to to husbands, to men, could it be that some of us men, we've not had answers to prayers simply because we've not been treating our wives properly? Could it be some of us are not receiving answers to our prayers because we're expecting God to bless us and help us and so forth. And yet our relationships with one another are out of order. Just a question, but I think it's an important one. And then James talks, then he leads into this little discussion about the power of prayer. He says, the prayer of a righteous person, that is the person who's in right standing with God, the person who's living the way God would have them to live. Um, In other words, we can't live any way we like and then expect God to answer our prayers. It's part of what we just spoke about. But he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, or the English Standard Version says, has great power as it is working. We might say in the context of of James' letter that a faith that works leads to prayer that works. Faith that works leads to prayer that works. Or we can flip it and say prayer that works flows out of a life of faith that works, that not only mouths words of faith, that not only comes to church and sings a song and say, oh, yeah, I believe this and I believe that. We come to an altar and pray, but we actually live it out. And that kind of life leads to prayer that becomes effective and Powerful. And James loves to give illustrations. One thing I learned, I don't know if, if you caught it, that throughout his letter, James constantly brings up illustrations. And here he uses Elijah, one of the heroes of the faith for the Jewish people. He says, listen, Elijah, he was a man just like us with a nature just like ours. In other words, he wasn't some superhuman being. You know, we read about these Bible characters and all the stuff that they did. Oh, man, you know, they're like, you know, like demigods. You know, it's like Superman coming onto the earth, you know, and so forth, you know. But James says, listen, he wasn't born with special powers. He wasn't some like demigod. And yet his prayers were effective. Why? Because, well, for one, we know he was a righteous man. He lived the way God would have him to live. He obeyed God. And he prayed fervently or earnestly, James writes, or actually, literally, listen to this. I wish I could put it up there, right? With, James says this, with prayer, he prayed. Now, that sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? But it's kind of like an idiom to make a point. With prayer, he prayed he prayed with prayer he prayed that it's just as James is telling us listen just as Elijah a man just like us received such incredible and miraculous answers to his prayers so too can we as God's people as we live our lives rightly before God and as we pray with prayer that is as we consistently turn to God in prayer. You see Elijah was consistent in his prayer, and so too if we will be consistent in our prayers and live the way God has called us to live, we too can have answers to our prayers. Elijah wasn't some like demigod as they said, some superhuman being. And so if we'll just kind of follow in his tracks, living a righteous life and being consistent in our prayers, we can experience some incredible answers to our prayers. And then finally James He closes with this, that we need to take responsibility for one another. And, you know, James' words are so pastoral. After all, he wasn't with them there in person. I mean, he was a pastor, and I, you know, I just kind of felt this way during this pandemic and when everybody's kind of scattered all over, you know. And now his, his, his church is all scattered throughout the region, and he wants to make sure that everyone's on the right track, and so he needs them to watch over one another. His words are meant to encourage these believers to realize they weren't only to care for themselves, but for each other. And thus, if they were to see someone among them to begin to wander from the faith, maybe in the way they were living, maybe the way they were using their tongues, maybe the way they were treating those around them, they were to lovingly and gently do what they could to bring them back. And by doing so, James says, they could potentially save that person from spiritual death And lead them back into the forgiveness of God. And listen, church, I'm just reminded of this this morning. Kim, if you come, please, thank you. I'm just reminded how we need to be careful not to give up on each other. Amen? We need to be careful not to give up. We too easily throw in the towel on each other. Because you see, listen, no one is beyond the grace of God. No one's beyond the grace of God. And so, you know what, like, I need you to come along and kind of put me in check at times. You need me, and I'm not talking about as pastor, you know, just as fellow believers in Jesus, that we put each other in check. We don't get easily offended by it, right? But we receive what maybe God wants to speak into our lives, and we understand that no one is beyond the grace of God. And so how do we respond when faced with the difficulties that life brings our way? And the call of Scripture is to always, first of all, turn towards God. In the hard times of life and in the good times of life. When we're suffering and when we're doing well, when we're sad and when we're glad. And as people who claim to have put our faith in Jesus, we live the way God has called us to live. And we look to God in all circumstances with all of our needs. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 6.18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. To the Thessalonians, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And again, the writer to the Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so church, as we conclude this series of messages from James, I just want to challenge us to be people who not only mouth words of faith, who not just come to church and sing the songs and, you know, we recite the creeds or whatever it might be, but people who put our faith into action by how we live and by how we pray because that's, that's how we put our faith to work. After all, I hope you've caught it by now, those of you online, those of you in the sanctuary, and even if you're just with us today. But James has been teaching us from beginning to end that only a faith that works is a faith that works. And so let's put our faith into action as we follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. am going to ask the worship team to come. And I just want to...